0: I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, The Layperson's Guide to Enjoying Music's Benefits. With me today is scientist, author, Professor Andre Viscontas. Dr. Viscontas has a particular interest in the intersection between music and science and is also known as Dr. Dre by her students at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, where she is pioneering the application of neuroscience to musical training, and at the University of San Francisco, where she is an assistant professor of psychology. She's been on the Oprah Winfrey Show. She is a working singer and creative director of Pasadena Opera, and she's a fellow podcast creator and host. Welcome to the show, Indre. Thanks so much for having me, Mindy. It's great to be here. I'm kind of thinking what I should be asking you today is when do you sleep? Because I think there are several full-time jobs in that introduction, and that's not even your full bio. <laughs> yeah, well, the beautiful thing about having
1: an academic job is that you do have periods of time when you're not actually teaching, like long periods of time, like three okay. months in the summer and six weeks over winter break. Sure. Um, and so what I tend to do is I tend to work on projects uh, at one at a time. So you know, I'll, I'll delve deeply into say if I'm directing an opera for Pasadena Opera, uh-huh. that will take over my life for those, you know, six weeks. <clears throat> and excuse me. And then, you know, I'll I'll go back to teaching for a while. And then, when we're on hiatus in the summer, that's when I can uh, put together another season of my podcast Cadence. Uh-huh. Um, so that's that's been my strategy: is to to not try to do everything at once, but uh-huh. rather to you know have a really clear five year plan, or you know, and have have at least the next year uh, slated off for projects and. Then uh-huh.
0: sort- Oh, good for you! So, well, so yeah. it, you're obviously making really good use of your hiatus. <laughs> well, I I am thrilled to have you on the show today, talking about a topic that is in that intersection between music and science. I'm really intrigued by the studies that found links between music and hormones like oxytocin and dopamine. I remember hearing a lot about oxytocin when my kids were born; it's associated mm-hmm. with breastfeeding and bonding. And I think of dopamine as the feel good chemical. For those of us who are not scientists, can you describe a little bit more what oxytocin and dopamine are and what their function is? Yeah, sure.
1: So they're, you know, they're both chemicals that send signals to the brain uh, that have certain results and effects on our behavior. Uh, so it's often hard to tell exactly what a particular chemical does, because it depends on which receptors it's binding to and where in the brain it's having its effect. So dopamine, for example, has five different types of receptors that it can bind to, all having pretty different effects, and it's all over the brain. So in one part of the brain, it's actually involved in movement. That's why people with Parkinson's disease, Oh, yeah, uh, have difficulty moving uh, voluntarily. That's mm. one of the first symptoms. Uh, and it's also part of the reward system, which is our kind of, uh, the, the way in which we stay motivated to do things. Um, it's interesting that you sort of call it the feel-good chemical, because it's actually high, levels are high, even when we're not feeling so good, but something really important is happening. Uh, so I like to think of it as the salience chemical, because it shows us what's important to to, to sort of register in the environment, because it, it has an effect on our, our how we feel. Um, and, you know, it's not always, it's not always good. But also, uh, dopamine is kind of tends to be more involved in the uh, the, the feelings of pleasure that we can satiate on. Uh, so, for example, you know, if you eat a lot of sugar, you mm-hmm. uh, might not want to eat more sugar immediately, uh, but then, you know, eventually you'll crave more and more mm-hmm. sugar. And so, anyway, there's, this is, a you know, the whole reward pathway is super complicated, but essentially it doesn't always lead to happiness, right? So I think that okay. that's important to distinguish, is that sometimes when we seek out pleasure and, and dopamine levels are high, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to end up being Content or happy, ah. um, oxytocin fills a different role in that sense. So it's it's considered a sort of attachment hormone because it does seem to modulate our behavior with respect to others. So our our social whether we are kind and, and you know loving and and whether we feel like hugging people or whether we find them threatening. And what I found really interesting in terms of the relationship between oxytocin levels and music listening is that oxytocin levels make you feel more connected to the people that you are connected to, your tribe. And music can be a great way of, you know, figuring out who your tribe is, right? It helps you Mm. craft your identity. It puts you in sync with others literally physically, and your brain waves can sync up and your respiration breathing rates can sync up. And so you feel literally connected to people. Mm. And oxytocin levels are high. But at the same time, When you feel very connected to one group of people, you often feel very disconnected or even aggressive towards groups of people that might be threatening your tribe. Uh, So this is, I think, why some people have a very visceral negative reaction to certain kinds of music. It's not Mm. like they say oh, you know, I I don't really care about opera. It's like, I hate opera, <laughs> you know, or I love opera or, you know, I hate rap or whatever it is that, uh-huh. you know, the genre that people really can't stand. It's not like they're like, eh, I don't really get it or I kind of find it boring. It's like, no, they actually have this like ah. strong negative reaction.
0: Sure. Oh, Interesting. Well, yeah, you talk in your book. Your book is called How Music Can Make You Better, and it's fantastic. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Loved it. But you talk in your book about the unifying effect that oxytocin can have on us when we're experiencing music as a group. And you talk about how we can all enter a theater or a concert venue with varying opinions and beliefs and joys and sorrows. But for the time of that song or the time of that concert, we feel that there's so much more that brings us together than separates us and that's that's really a great way of articulating that unifying effect
1: yeah i mean i think to me that's one of the magical things about music is that for some reason we can feel it in our bones and our bodies and our brains in ways that are not necessarily kind of conscious you know we're not we're not really you know we 're not really thinking clearly about it we 're not like trying very hard. It seems to happen even outside of our you know even if we don 't try we just we just makes us feel better and feel more in sync mm. uh, and I think one of the reasons is because yeah, we feel this sense of connection to others when we we are in sync and and so one of my favorite studies was one in which um they actually you know had people breathe in oxytocin, so essentially boosting their oxytocin levels artificially. And they found that they were better able to match the rhythm <laughs> of another oh. person dancing. Uh, so, you know, it can like, you know, it can literally make you, you know, b- better, more in sync with someone else. So <laughs> it does seem to be driving that, you know, desire to to connect with someone else.
0: Uh-huh. Well, and what you're talking about, too, touches on another point in your book that uh, for most of us, happiness is more than just feeling pleasure. We also want to find meaning in a life Mm -hmm. that's lived well. And music taps into both of those. It makes us feel good and satisfies our search for meaning in a lot of different ways. And some of those can be through meaningful connection with other people and relationships.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, sometimes it's really hard to put the human experience into words. And you know, that that shouldn't surprise us, because language is just one function of the brain, the brain has a lot of other things that it's doing that don't involve language at all. Mm -hmm. And so to sort of try to understand some of those other aspects, the nonverbal aspects of our experience, music is really great at helping us do that. So we can kind of you know, sense these other meanings in music, even if we can't necessarily put them to words, although some people are very good at putting those them into words. And so, you know, we, we have all these layers that we can relate to, and that brings us a sort of more of a sense of contentment. And so that's like, you know, when I think about dopamine as being primarily involved in pleasure, I mean, it's more complicated than that. but And then there are these other neurotransmitters, uh, other monoamines like serotonin, but also, um, you know, endorphins and, and other, other neurotransmitters that really are involved in helping us more f- feel more contentment or um, even in the sense of this sort of meaningfulness. Mm. And, and that satiation. they too. Yeah, that's right. They too. And, and, and right. So, so, you know, we, one of the things that's different about human beings compared with other animals, although, you know, we we can't really ask the other animals, <laughs> uh, is that we do tend to satiate pretty quickly. But then we can switch to another type of source of pleasure, right? So, you know, if you've just, uh, you know, had great sex, you could go and then, you know, eat a cheesecake, and it can be super pleasurable, right? Uh-huh. It's not like you're like completely maxed out on your ability to feel pleasure. Sure. Um, but there's a period of time at, right after an experience where you don't want, you know, you've been satiated, you don't want that experience again. In fact, it can be aversive to, mm, to sure. be forced into that kind of experience. Um, Sugar's a good example of that, yeah, sugar's a great example of that um and and so, and I think music is too, because there are times where you listen to your favorite song and it just gives you such a big mood boost, and you feel so awesome. But if someone forced you to listen to it all day long, <laughs> uh-huh. oh my goodness, by the 30th listen, you'd probably be sure. like, I can't stand it anymore. I mean, <laughs> if you have
0: young children, you already know <laughs> what this is like. Sure, yes. So how does music affect levels of dopamine and oxytocin in our brains?
1: Yeah, so it all depends on how we're listening to the to music and what that music is. So as everyone probably has experienced, not all music is equally pleasurable to all people. In fact, music is very subjective. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about how that subjective taste develops. Um, But essentially, if let's say you're listening to music that you're really enjoying, that you know, and you're listening as opposed to playing, because that too, when you're playing music, uh, when you're, you're participating in music making, that's Mm -hmm. a whole other way in which your brain can be activated. Uh Um, But let's say you're listening to music, and you're really enjoying and it's a genre that you love, it's a piece that you love. So one of the things that dopamine is responsible for is tracking uh, the things in the environment that will bring you pleasure. So you know, usually in one particular part of the piece, if the musicians have done their job right, they will build up some tension, and you know there will be a climax, and that's in part uh, taking advantage of the fact that that is how dopamine levels and how motivation works in our own brains. So. Um, there's a part of the brain uh, called the caudate nucleus, which is part of the reward pathway that that looks at the environment and predicts, anticipates reward. And so we see dopamine levels are higher in the caudate when uh, tension is being built up uh, before the release, before the climax, before, you know, this sublime experience that some mm-hmm. people get where they get the chills, literally like, you know, shivers down their spine. Sure. Um, and then in the moment in which you're having that pleasurable experience, dopamine Uh, levels boost up in the nucleus accumbens which is considered the the true pleasure center so like if you implant an electrode into a rat's nucleus accumbens and you teach the rat to push a lever and that sends a little electrical jolt into down that electrode that rat will spend its entire day pressing that lever like it will not satiate it will not stop doing Uh, that like it is that we think pleasurable though we don't know whether the rat really is feeling good or whether it's feeling like it needs to keep doing that right there's okay. sometimes when you when you talk to people who are addicted to drugs they don't mm. say like i want the drug to feel good they just say i just need to take the drug sure. like it's a different experience but anyway so, um, so I like to think of the caudate as kind of you know um, wanting, and then the nucleus accumbens as liking. And so, when we're listening to a piece of music that has you know one of these great uh, build up of tensions and then a release, we see these dopamine levels in these two regions, you know, tracking the anticipation in the caudate, and then finally the release in the nucleus accumbens. And so. That means that for, 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 from a musician's perspective, it's really important that you give the audience cues that something really great is going to happen because mm-hmm. the higher the levels of dopamine and the caudate during the anticipation phase, the greater the pleasurable experience, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the greater the desire, you know, the better the pleasure. So sure. you, know, you need to build up that desire. And so that I think that comes from a very, you know, kind of ancient way in which our brains... Uh, help shape our behavior we we have to like continue to want to seek out a goal in order to achieve it and so Mm. you know this is this is what exactly what it's tapping into is this
0: is this need to stay on task until you get that final burst of pleasure Uh, Interesting how related it is to so many other areas. I mean, you think about other appetites, whether it's food or sex or power or achievement, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, it, it all has that same process of building the anticipation and the wanting phase and then the... The liking, the liking phase where there's uh, the reward is realized. Yeah, and and
1: in fact, you know, we see music as a soundtrack to all of those experiences too. You know, this is why anytime uh, if you're in the U.S. and you're going to go, you know, listen to a presidential candidate talk, there is going to be music involved. You know, they're going to be (laughs) ramping up that excitation, that anticipation. (laughs) You know, using music because it's a very powerful tool to do that. And you know, anyone who has watched a movie. Uh, and you know, with a bad uh, soundtrack knows how it, how effective a soundtrack can be because once it's not good, it's really, you know, it kind of ruins the whole movie. So, sure. Yeah. You know, yeah.
0: Really apparent. Sometimes the best soundtracks are almost unnoticeable because yes. they contribute so much to the experience of what you're watching visually.
1: Without banging you over the head with it. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Uh, yeah. How do you measure those levels of dopamine and oxytocin in people?
1: Yeah. So there are a number of different ways. Um, Oxytocin is a hormone that usually people just measure in levels of by taking, you know, samples. uh, And so, yeah, you know, you can, you can, you can do a swab, you can, you know, look at because, you know, you can, you can, so you can essentially sample levels. And so it's not super accurate in terms of the timing, um, but it's a big hormone and it's a hormone that, you know, takes, you know, it's long lasting. When it comes to dopamine and the kinds of timing that i'm describing it's you have to be more precise because you want to track you know how the neurotransmitter's acting and it's and in in that way it's actually a slower acting neurochemical than i'm oh, sorry a faster acting neurochemical than oxytocin, which is slower acting and longer lasting mm-hmm. uh, so you do, you, there's a number of different ways to do it, but probably the canonical one is, um, you know, some studies from Robert Satori's lab, uh, you know, with the, my colleague Valerie Salimpur did some of this work. But um, mm-hmm. basically what they do is they do brain imaging of where they're tracking literally how much of that particular uh neurotransmitter there is by looking at sort of how it's binding um so you can sort of track the chemical binding and then so then you can see where in time these levels are greater it's not you know the timing still isn't so precise that you can look at you know millisecond timing which mm-hmm. you know or, uh but but you can on the order of several seconds and then that's why like the kind of resolution that we have is like okay like where where we see the phrase building we see higher levels here you know where we see the climax see higher levels there um so that's that's the brain side of it, you know, when okay. in terms of like um, monitoring a person's reaction to and how the dopamine levels cause the, the physical reaction, there, there are a couple of ways to do that. Um, one, you can do a behavioral uh, test where basically you ask people how much money they would pay <laughs> to buy a particular song, and that should be an indicator of how much they liked it, uh, yeah. right? So, okay. And because dopamine is involved in the reward pathway, it's involved in you know gambling and, and sort of money and valence and et cetera, that kind of a behavioral okay. test is kind of an interesting way to look at it. Um, But you can also look at physiological responses for that experience of the chills that I mentioned a minute ago, which is this very specific physiological response where, you know, you have a distinct change in in breathing and change in in the way your heart is beating. We can look at your um, how sweaty your, your hands are, et cetera. So these are all these measures that you can you can collect simultaneously and that can give you a signal of when the person is getting the chills.
0: Okay. And when we get the chills, it's not always because of one specific emotion. It could be excitement. It could be patriotism. It Mm -hmm. could be sadness. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, like, sometimes it's not even really, uh, it doesn't even feel that
1: emotional. Like, I've certainly... You know, but what's what's interesting to me about the chills is that it seems to be consistent. So if there's a particular piece or a particular performance by a group of a particular piece that gives you the chills, you know, you're you're about you know, seventy five percent of the time you're going to get the chills no matter what when you listen to that particular uh, recording or performance. And and to me, so there are certain uh, pieces that I sing that always give me the chills in the same spot. And it even gets mm. to the point where like you know, even if I'm not 100% focused on the emotion, maybe I'm thinking about something technical. Maybe I'm thinking about like, you know, raising my soft palate or making a particular Mm -hmm. sound or thinking about breathing, like really not at all thinking about the emotion. And I still get the chills. (laughs) And so it's like very weird because it is this kind of visceral reaction. It's not Totally devoid of emotion, because if a piece itself is not emotionally moving to me, then I won't get the chills ever at all. Okay, Um, But it seems like my body remembers that it got the chills from this particular piece. And so even when I listen to it again, and I'm not having that big emotional reaction, it'll still happen. But I think, you know, as scientists, it's like the chills are still a bit of a mystery because we think that it's probably to do with some... um, Combination of the activation of two nervous systems, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. Sympathetic is our fight or flight response, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's this coordinated effort by your body to get you ready to uh, get out of a dangerous situation. And the parasympathetic nervous system is essentially the opposite of that. And so, like, it's kind of this rebound. And so it's this idea that the chills are, you know, your your sympathetic nervous system being activated, but your brain being able to tell that you're actually not in danger. So, you know. You know you're safe, but somehow this um, nervous system response is happening. And so you get some effects, some of these physiological effects of fight or flight, you know, like so piloerection where, you know, your hair is standing... Uh, you know, goosebumps literally is like your hair standing yeah. up. Well, if you think about what a cat does when it's in fight or flight, is like <laughs> that's you know, everyone has this image now of like you know the cat's hair standing on end. Uh-huh. So we know that that's part of that response. But you're sitting in a concert hall and you're getting the chills. You know that you're not actually in danger. Uh-huh. and so there's there 's a kind of pleasure to it because you can um kind of enjoy the fact that okay like everything 's okay i 'm not in danger i don 't need to flee. I can just have this kind of um you know th- this reaction and and you have to remember that like so when you go into fight or flight, you do have a strong response of another set of um, neurotransmitters called endorphins where like you know, you don't feel pain, right? So there's lots mm. of stories of people who, uh, you know, have an injury in the middle of a basketball game, but they play through it, right? And yeah. it's only afterwards that they realize, oh, I actually broke my ankle. <laughs> sure. Um, And that's because their nervous system is in this heightened state where, like, pain is not going to be productive. Uh, it needs to get you out of this dangerous situation. Uh, and so there is a kind of dampening of pain and uh, analgesia and a kind of sense of euphoria that can accompany being in fight or flight. Mm. Uh, And so I think that, you know, when you have this, this, this chill reaction, it's all of these kind of subtle things kind of blending together, so Mm. that you get this kind of sense of, of this, you know, very ancient response, physiological response to, you know, something plus, you have a, a, an awareness that there isn't anything dangerous, but you still have the benefit of this, you know, sense of euphoria from from Uh.
0: this hormone change. Oh, fascinating. Well, I'm going to have to look up the music, uh, see if YouTube has a recording of Barber's Adagio for Strings, Mm -hmm. because you remark in your book that that song is the one piece of music most likely to give someone the chills, and it's sometimes called the saddest music ever. So I'll look for that, and if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Well, one other quote from your book that I really thought kind of sums this up really nicely is, when the melody finally reaches its destination, it's as though the sun has broken through the clouds. We feel pleasure at the release of tension, the return to the tonic, just as we do when we finally come home. But it's the journey that resonates with us. Really like that.
1: Yeah, you know, this is like, this is the this is what it means to be human, I think, is that, yeah. you know, we all know we're gonna die. Right? Yeah. And yet, you know, somehow we still love being alive. And it's the journey and you know, anything that you do that really is at all meaningful. At all involves this reward pathway, these motivated behaviors. Um, everyone will tell you, look, it's the journey, not the destination. You know, whether it's a a, a job that you're doing or a, you know, a, a learning to play a musical instrument, uh, that really is that what we live for. Uh, and so I think that that's that that this piece, Barbara Zadashia for strings, and I need to credit Valerie salampore for for telling me because she was the one who was like, look, we've done this. These we've these studies on the chills and it's this piece always is the one that is like most likely to make it happen and if you listen to it that's exactly what is happening like everybody knows where the melody wants to go and yet Uh it keeps getting sidetracked and you know (laughs) doesn't get there and you're just like oh just get there already and like we can all relate to that
0: Sure, definitely. Well, one thing I want to touch on before we wrap up is the fact that oxytocin can help anyone, especially elderly and people with dementia, feel less isolated. And right now we have so much intentional quarantine, self-isolation, social distancing going on because of COVID-19. I'm wondering how we can take advantage of the way music can increase oxytocin during this time of social distancing, especially for the elderly who are mostly at risk from COVID-19 and may be really feeling that distance.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a, a really fascinating time for musicians, because on the one hand, a lot of us who rely on live performances for our income are f- seeing real economic hardship, right? Because oh, yeah. everything's been canceled. So you can't have... And, and so people are starting to stream online. And I was like noticing one in particular, there's this mezzo-soprano named Joyce DiDonato, who's very popular. But, you know, she just started literally like in her living room or, or some, you know, someplace place just singing and sharing. And it was like 3.4 million views, like mm. <laughs> within a couple minutes. And the Met, you know, the greatest opera yeah. house perhaps uh, in the world is a uh, streaming their operas for free every single night. And I got a text <laughs> message from a friend of mine who has two little kids not at all interested in opera and she's like we're listening to Carmen at the Met and the kids Uh, are enthralled and like and so I so I think this is a kind of magical moment for people to sort of rediscover to sit and listen uh and and sort of listen kind of actively and to music which we generally don't have time to do Mm -hmm. um and that I think can really be a boon I think I think even though and and it's interesting because, you know, we have the internet, thankfully. And so we can kind of live connect with people. I still don't think it's the same as being in, in the room with them. Sure, But mm-hmm. it's certainly better than being alone um, mm-hmm. or even listening to pre-recorded music because there is still that sense of this music is being made right now. And so we listen differently. Mm-hmm. So I think for older people in particular, like I would just encourage, you know, and I would also encourage a variety of music. Like, yeah, sure. Maybe Monday nights stream the Met you know, opera and HD, but maybe Tuesday night, stream some jazz performance. And, mm. you know, so everybody gets a little taste of what it is that they yeah. want. And, and yeah, it's it's a great mood booster. It's great to feel connected with each other. I mean, anyone mm-hmm. who's gone through a breakup and has found the breakup song that helped them get through it knows uh-huh. what this is like. So I feel like we are now, sure. you know, all going through a collective period of <laughs> feeling blue. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I do think it's gonna be an unprecedented time for people sharing uh music with each other.
0: Mm. Neat, great ideas. I asked all my guests to give listeners what I call an improv, which is a try this at home, a hack, an experiment that will enhance their lives with music. That actually was a really great one right there. (laughs) Do you have any other recommendations today for
1: listeners? Yeah, so kind of building on that, I think what's really interesting is to listen to someone else's Spotify or other playlist that they really love. So not just the Spotify playlist that Spotify is telling you that it'll think that you like. (laughs) Yeah, literally one that someone else has posted of their favorite songs and to listen without judgment to listen to just you know see what what you will hear because I think so often we think that you know we don't like a particular genre of music I mean I've I've had people say to me you know I just don't like opera and that Uh to me is like someone saying I just don't like movies well there's so Mm. many different genres within opera like maybe you don't like Gilbert and Sullivan but you Uh, love Wagner or like you know there's so many different ways of experiencing it and I think sometimes we're just very quick when we don't understand something to just throw all of that whole you know thing topic subject whatever out um, mm-hmm. and so I just encourage people to to you know and and the reason I say someone else's playlist is supposed to make making your own cuz this is some this is a playlist that someone else really curated and found yeah. meaningful you know what i mean yeah yeah so so you're you're likely to find some real gems in there and so mm. you know i'd encourage people to you know share playlists and and really sit down and listen to them
0: great idea love it well, if people want to learn more about your work and connect with you, tell us what your website is.
1: Sure. So my website is just my first and last name.com, So IndreViscontis.com. And it's a place where you can learn a little bit more about me uh, and some of my projects. Uh, I do some video stuff. I have these podcasts and uh, I'm also a director uh, and performer of opera. So there's some links there. Um, but
0: yeah, that's so IndreViscontis.com. You can also find me on Twitter at indrevis. Okay, I'll include links to all of those in the show notes. Indrae Contest, for those of you who are listening and don't make it to the show notes, is spelled I N D R E. V-I-S-K-O-N-T-A-S dot com. I'll put links in there also to your book, How Music Can Make You Better. Love that. And uh, also links to your two podcasts, Cadence podcast, What Music Tells Us About the Mind. And you're also host and creator of the science podcast, Inquiring Minds. I ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or a story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Can you tell us about the song that you're sharing with us today?
1: So this is a piece by my chamber music ensemble, Vocal Collective. And the other players or instrumentalists are Keisuke Nakagoshi on piano, uh, Joseph Miley on violin, Paling Lin on viola, and Adia McAdam Somer on cello, and it's a piece that's over a hundred years old uh, by a composer named Chausson, and it's called Chanson Perpétuelle or uh, the Never Ending Song. It's a a poem that in in which the woman describes a kind of real devastating experience with love where she knows that you know she fell in love with this person from the moment they first met um but he didn't feel the same way and eventually he left and it sort of talks about how she's you know she feels his absence very strongly And I find this piece incredibly moving because right from the beginning, you have this melodic motif that repeats over and over and over again. And so by the time you get to the climax of the piece, you know, you know, where where it's going to go. And it just kind of, to me, epitomizes the depth of despair that can sometimes happen when you love someone and it's unrequited.
0: to the full song by going to the show notes at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast episode 35. Also in the show notes is a YouTube recording of Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. According to work by Injury's colleague, Dr. Valerie Salampour, this song is the one piece of music most likely to give someone the chills and is sometimes called the saddest music ever written. You can listen right in the show notes, but if you click through on the link to play it in YouTube, you can read the comments people have left. And it's really fascinating to read those comments where people have described what this song means to them or the role it's played in their life. There are a couple of resources I wanted to share with you first There is a lot of upheaval and uncertainty and anxiety going on right now in our world related to COVID-19. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, there is a song put out by Music for the Soul that is offering comfort to a lot of people right now. It's called I've Got This. And founder Steve Seiler, who was a guest on the show back on episode 20, has graciously made this song and its lyrics available for free streaming on their website Music for the org slash resources slash I've hyphen got hyphen this just scroll down to listen and lyrics and there's a direct link to that in the show notes. So thank you, Steve, for that wonderful song and resource. Second, Indre and her publisher have generously given a free copy of Indre's book, How Music Can Make You Better, to a lucky listener. I just finished reading this book about a week ago and I absolutely loved it. It's made up of short sections that each touch on a different, fascinating way that music benefits our lives. Great quarantine time reading or a great gift for someone who could use a little lift at the moment. And it's a beautiful book that would look great on a nightstand. Here's what to do to enter the drawing for the free copy of injury's book. Number one, post a screenshot of this episode to social media and mention something interesting you heard in the episode. Two, tag me so I can see your post and enter you in the drawing. And if you're posting on Twitter, tag injury also at Indre This. You can do this by posting on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Do this before the end of the day on Tuesday, April 7. The winner will be notified the following day, April 8. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hang in there during these interesting and challenging times. Give yourself and those around you a little extra grace As we're all practicing social distancing, I'd love to virtually connect with you. If you come across any examples of how music is helping people cope with COVID-19 challenges, send them my way so I can share them or just connect with me on social media or through email. All my contact links are on my website and petersonmusic.com slash podcast. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.